Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you uh, this evening to the Royal Academy of Arts. Uh, it's also a great pleasure to, to have another event as part of our uh, ongoing partnership with Docomomo in this series called Forgotten Master, in which we look at the work of some overlooked uh, figures of the modern movement in architecture uh, by inviting uh, historians and architects to discuss the work of these, of these overlooked figures. Um, uh, before handing over to Tony Freton, who is the trustee, uh, one of the trustees of Docomomo, uh, who will be introducing a little bit the, the, the event today and our, and our speakers, uh, I would like to, to encourage you to have a look to the, our next event this week, uh, Automated Environments, in which we will be looking at uh, how automation is having an impact at an urban scale and how that is like, um, redefining like gender politics in, in the city. It's uh, organized with the new institute in, in Rotterdam. Uh, apart from that, uh, um, before handing over, I would like to, to thank our supporters uh, this evening. As I said, uh, Docomomo for um, curating the, this event with us and also to the um, Embassy of Denmark in London for their very kind support and making possible this evening. And also to Taki Ceramics, our lead sponsor in 2018, and the Drew Heinz Endowment for Architecture. And now, without further ado, please give a warm welcome to Tony Freton. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the first thing to say is that this is jointly produced this lecture series is jointly produced, as has been said, by um, the Royal Academy in Dokomomo. And this is, now you're all seated and within my power. It's my duty to advance the possibility that you might join Dokomomo. And its um, program will be spelled out a little by um, the chair, Judy Loach, after everything is finished. Dokomomo, we find uh, at these meetings is not well known, but its mission is to, um, it's non-profit and its uh, role is to organize monthly lectures on the subject of modernism, running several national and international study tours annually and publishing an illustrated newsletter, which is very good, and campaigning for the protection of important modernist buildings and its sites which are at risk. So at the door, uh, on leaving, there'll be Philip Boyle, who will give out handbills, which would allow you to understand how you could join Dokomomo. But this evening, we'll be talking about the Danish master, uh, Kai Fisker. And Kai Fisker was rather typical for uh, Swedish and Danish architects in that he uh, began his career, his early career, as a classicist, or let's say in the tradition, and then moved quite quickly at the early part of the 20th century to modernism. But as I say with the Swedish architects, um, that transition was not towards a modernism that was very programmatic and drastic, such as we saw with Corbusier or Mies van der Rohe, and, France and Germany, but a much gentler and more inclusive modernism. And tonight's speakers are first Martin Schuberg, who is um, a, an historian and 
Associate Professor at the Royal Danish Academy School of Architecture in the architecture faculty. And he, Martin Suberg, is in the early stages of writing a book on Kai Fiske. And that book will be the first in English on the uh, Danish master. And it's to be published by Bloomsbury. So we will wait with pleasure for that publication. Following Martin's presentation, there will be a talk uh, by a practitioner, and that's, as has been said, the format for these evenings. And this practitioner this evening is John Glue, who's an architect, an educator, photographer, and thinker. And then at the end of that, I'll be pleased to chair a small discussion between the two protagonists and possibly take questions from you. So now I'll, it's my pleasure to introduce Martin Suberg. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction, Tony. I would also like to begin by thanking Dokomomo and the Royal Academy for inviting me to be part of this event. Also a very warm thank you to Junglu for the conversations that we have had during the preparations of, of this event. To many of you, Kai Fiske may be a forgotten Danish architect, but if one's living in Copenhagen, Fiske is almost unavoidable. Most of Copenhagen's inhabitants may not recognize Fiske's name, but definitely his numerous residential buildings, they seem to be everywhere. In a Danish context, Fiske is considered to be one of the most important Danish architects of the 20th century. He's often associated with what has been termed a functional tradition, that is uh, some sort of a hybridization of international modernism and more regional architectural typologies, the Danish vernacular in some sort of sense. But why should non-Danes, everyone else, really care about Fiske? Well, I've given my talk the title Public Order and I realized that it might come across a bit ironic. In fact, Fiske's I have the impression that he was a very serious man. But I think it points to two important aspects of Fiske's work. Well, the first is that he seems to be addressing the question how to create some sort of order in a contemporary and rapidly expanding and often very disorganized modern city. And furthermore, that this sense of order or organization stands in relation to the inhabitants of such a city, a public. In what has been termed Fisker's architectural statement or testament, the essay called Personal Idealization or Anonymity, it was published in 1964, just one year before Fisker died, he pointed to architect's obligations to subordinate himself or herself and the artistic will to the needs of human beings, rather than being um, creating the more spectacular. I'd like to quote Fisker from this essay. He says, we must remember that those architects who are able to put to order our urban picture and our landscape and who are able to create a human environment containing good dwellings as a framework for the good life are more valuable to society 
than those who create the individual and sensational artwork. In this talk, I will mainly address these dwellings, Fisker's residential housing projects, but I'll also say a bit about some of the public institutions that Fisker built, primarily Aarhus University. Providing sufficient housing for a growing urban population was a significant challenge to modern architects in Denmark and elsewhere. During the 1920s and 30s, Fisker was commissioned to design a number of residential housing projects in Copenhagen. And this allowed him to explore the possibilities of large-scale housing through variations of the typology of the perimeter block. Other aspects of house building were considered as well. That would include particular forms of construction, new technologies, materials, but also the relationship between building and context, including renegotiations of the relationship between the public and the private. To Fisker, modern architecture was a project. In a sense, we could say that it's similar to what has been pronounced much more recently by Italian architect and theorist Pio Vittorio Aureli, that is, as a pursuit of an ultimate solution and form. Yet to Fisker, such a pursuit would not require the architect to establish uh, as the quote suggested, a sort of avant-garde attitude. The presentation of either too unseen or the extremely original. Only a few of Fisker's projects have really iconic qualities. Many of them are indeed rather anonymous, if not to say a bit dull. He would consider and develop existing models within the typologies and registers of housing. It's architecture considered as a built framework for the daily life of people was concurrently forming part of a larger urban scenography or urban picture, as he mentioned. Changing national polit political circumstances were influential to the changes in Danish housing design in the 20s and 30s. Regulations of rent levels during the first decades of the 20th century were intended to secure the situation of people renting apartments. In 1917, a law, a law was passed for the financial support of housing construction with the intention of diminishing the consequences of the then occurring housing crisis and also to promote the construction of more housing. Between 1923 and 27, it was further supported by uh, a state housing foundation. Often the municipality of Copenhagen would function as a client or commissioner. Land prices were kept down by the municipality, which owned major plots of land in Copenhagen. And that would result in new options for housing, not least in terms of scale. The redefinition of the scale of the city was, uh, happened through these new larger residential housing projects. And they were in part influenced by, in particular, one very massive classical competition project from 1919 on the former railway area close to Copenhagen Central Station. It was designed by the architects Eva Benson and Carl Peterson, the latter professor at the Royal Academy, and it seems to accentuate the contrast between this huge massive block of building and the void of this bordering St. George's Lake. Fisker was working with a similar total structure in various early projects. 
Hornbeck Hoops, built in 1920-22, is a perimeter block of higher to unseen scale. It surrounds a common green in the middle of park-like dimensions. The floor plan layout is a, more or less a rectangle, but it's slightly adjusted in one of the corners to the curvature of one of the streets, Borps Elite. On the parallel street of Orgel, this is not the case, even though the street curved as well. This longest of the four facades stretches as a full plane, as if to emphasize the almost endless repetition of windows and other elements of the facade, only to be fitted together by the cornerstones. Though the facade indicates a repetition of the same elements, the plan, in fact, reveals itself to be much more varied and complex. The building contains a significant number of different planned solutions, all determined by their, we should just go back, by their position within the framework of the building's outlines. It's a building for the masses, but with very fine differentiations in plan and in detailing within the total very homogeneous scheme. A slightly later project, Gulfos Hus, from 1924 to 27, it's one of my personal favorites. It applies some of the similar means. It's a large perimeter block, it has arch entries to a common yard, brickwork, contrasting window frames, yet contractions and shifts of elements make the facade layout much more playful, I think, much more rhythmic. In 1936, Fisker published the results of research into Copenhagen typologies housing typologies, and this was based on studies conducted at the Royal Danish Academy. The research covered the period of 1940 to 36, and Fisker was attentive to the political and economic conditions that influenced housing construction during this period, as a framework for understanding the building plans and the layout of the individual apartments. The most obvious change during this period, according to Fisker, was the transition from this perimeter block that we just saw with Hornbeck Hus and Gulfos Hus, and which had dominated the Copenhagen cityscape for centuries, and into new types of distribution, including half-closed schemes, parallel houses, schemes consisting of compositions of blocks or houses positioned in a 90-degree angle, and you have some examples to the left. These studies can be related to Fisker's own housing projects in Copenhagen at the time. His international outlook and the projects, for, uh, the projects by continental modern movement architects resulted in a marked formal shift from the classical forms of the 20s toward a regionalized version of functionalism, featuring local materials and building techniques, in particular brickwork. Here's one example. Architecture not only provides housing for the masses of the metropolis, but it furthermore provides a framework for the experience of the urban, a mediator between the private and the collective or public. The introduction of balconies and other means of transitioning between different types of spaces I explored in Fisker's project with a particular sensitivity towards the difference between the haptic experience of the building's materiality and the visual impact within an urban scenography. For instance, in this project at Wodrowsweit from 1930, or this one, a triangular block at Oak Boulevard, not so far from uh, what you saw before, it's from 1932. Or this one, Vista Suhus, at one of the lakes, 
the same lake that we saw in Peterson and Benson's project from 1935 to 39. These projects can be seen as materialized considerations of the relationship between the one, the individualized bodies of a modern contemporary subject, and the many, the collective, the masses, an attempt to construct a balance between these intertwined parameters. Just some sketches. The flats were advertised on the railings on the construction site, as you can see, and a photograph of the interior. Again, legal measures were of some importance. In 1929, it was made legal to leave out one of the two staircases that had hired to been mandatory in multi-story houses in Copenhagen. Always need to be uh, there would always be a more honored front staircase leading to the main entrance of apartments and a kitchen staircase used for the transportation of fuel for the heating of apartments, as well as for more practical purposes. The double staircase system not only served to separate functions, but was as well a system for fire protection. If one staircase would be burning, the other one could be used for evacuation. Now the balconies were introduced as a system of escape. And this released space within the plan and made possible new plan, design, plan designs, new planning schemes. After to some extent having explored the possibilities of international functionalism during the 1930s, Fiscal returned to an architectural language clearly in dialogue with historical predecessors. His investigations and challenge of conventions is particularly evident in Dronningegården from 1942. It was completed in 1954, in which the perimeter block is cut through by symmetrical axes around a central square. Maybe you can see the British inspiration, or London inspiration for this scheme. So it cuts through a central square while the housing blocks form a silhouette of interlinked gables. Shortage of building materials during the 40s, you have to imagine this was built during the German occupation of Denmark, um, led to various adjustments of the design of this and contemporary projects in favor of local materials and traditional construction techniques. The ambiguity of the designs, amal amalgamations of individual houses and the perimeter block can be seen as resulting from Fisker's contingent approach when building within an existing urban context. You can see the right in the middle is this project. It's surrounded by 17th and 18th century houses. Again, this very graphic facade. Fisker's work also comprises new typologies for institutions affiliated with the Danish welfare state. It includes buildings for the University of Aarhus from 1931 to, 30, to 46, in collaboration with architect C.F. Müller, Paul Steeman, and landscape architect C.T. Horsensen. And it introduced an informal campus typology into Danish educational architecture. The university was founded in 1928. It was the first in the, on the peninsula of Jutland. And until then, there had only been one university in Denmark, in Copenhagen. Fisker, Müller, and Steeman won the competition in 1931 with a proposal that that was partly inspired by German architect Hannes Meyer's Allgemeine Deutsche Gewerkschaft Bundesschule in Bernau, just outside of Berlin from 1930. This is actually a postcard that Siv Müller would send back to Denmark. The architects visited this school during the competition in June 1931. 
The competition consisted of two parts, one for the layout of the ground and one for uh, the first building on the ground, which was the Institute for Physics, Chemistry and Anatomy. This building was completed in 1933, and the winning scheme was very sensitive, the general layout of the, of the area, um, to the typography, as maybe you can sense here. The buildings were placed on the perimeter of the site, and the middle area would be left as a public part, somewhat similar to Maya's project. The buildings, according to the competition projects, were to be built of yellow or red brick. The windows should be made of steel or bronze, and the roof were to be clad in copper. Yet a present or sponsorship from Danish brick companies consisting of one million bricks and roof tiles resulted in the decision to construct the buildings in yellow bricks and roof tiles. So it resulted in the somewhat maybe a little bit Italian appearance of these buildings. Consequently, the roof also had to be uh, a bit steeper. The consistent use of bricks made for a very homogeneous campus, though with very refined detailing and adjustment, not least to the topography, varying depths and heights of the buildings. Large gables, as you can see here, give some of the buildings a slightly classical feeling. It's just a plan of the first institute, the Natural History Museum from the late 30s. There's a particular sense of drama at the 155-meter-long main building, which was constructed in 1942 to 46, due to the differences in height between the park at the bottom and the street level. It allows for the clever inclusion of an amphitheater, also contributing to the sense of almost archaic monumentality. And this is a festive hall to the right. You see it in contemporary photograph. During the Second World War, municipal planners worked on developing a regional urban plan for Copenhagen. They were actually drawing on inspiration from contemporary British urban planning. The result was the so-called finger plan from 47 that you see on the left. The fingers represented the urban development zones and the areas in between the fingers were left open for recreational purposes. Volparken, a new neighborhood, was part of this large plan and consisted of residential housing blocks designed by three different studios, including Fiskers. It's the scheme that you see to the right. Fisker would also be responsible for the design of the neighborhood's local school, built in 52 to 57. Volpagen's housing blocks are typical of post-war Danish housing projects, freestanding blocks in a park-like landscape, providing people with larger and brighter apartments, though, as it has turned out, often lacking in urban qualities, and some of them socially less functional for various reasons, some of them more political and economic reasons, but also to some degree as a consequence of the urban planning scheme. In his text or essay called The Moral of Functionalism, published in 1947, Fisker would state, and I quote, now, after the first victory of the early raw functionalism, we should be concerned with the development of the more vigorous and human side of functional architecture. A clear and functional frame around modern existence, created with new means. Further development of tradition, perhaps, but not a return to forms past and gone. And he would continue, a building should be a shell around the life 
to be lived within it. A shell that will satisfy material as well as intellectual demands. The architect creates not life, but conditions of life. End quote. I find the Volpacken School particularly fascinating. You have the plan. In this project, Fisker seemed to have returned to a refined composition of masses and to a sort of graphic play of light and shadow that, in some sense, seemed to be very connected to his very early projects that I haven't shown here, but from the 1910s that were very inspired by arts and, the arts and craft movement. I think the entrance hall, in particular, has a, some sort of Nordic flair atmosphere to it. It's bright, tactile, it has these slender pillars. And to me, it suggests almost, almost the atmosphere of being in a typical Danish beechwood. Fiske's career would span 50 years, during which Danish society would undertake some very dramatic changes, in particular, due to the development of modern Danish welfare state and its new sense of public responsibility. This was reflected in Fisker's work, in continued dialogue with contemporary tendencies, international and local. First the classicism, then the more internationally inspired functionalism, and finally a renewed sense of tradition, and maybe to some degree site specificity. It's architecture at times aiming for the anonymous, or even the mundane. Yet it's architecture with the profound ambition of providing order, structure, and meaning to the life of a contemporary urban population. Thank you. Thank you to Dokomomo for inviting me and being generous in offering me the opportunity to speak. Um, and again, to Martin for being so generous <clears throat> with his thoughts from weeks ago. I think it's a good question. Why look at the work of Kai Fisker? Of the work I've actually experienced, I see it as one concerned with the visual and how I understand things <clears throat> much by their appearance. <laughs> I've chosen to look at three of his buildings from a very brief period in the form of a photo essay. Each one seems to index something quite different, new types of large-scale urban block. The first here, and the last here, really kind of whole urban blocks. And this one in the middle, um, which is more peculiar and mannered, a kind of blocky one. And I like its awkwardness, and I find this most interesting. Through my photography, this talk is predominantly visual, a companion to Martin's, and it's intended to try and promote the visual. Photography can be difficult to put into words. To me, it's audible, it speaks for itself. But I'll try to communicate what I saw by it. I'm indexing Fisker as a figure seen within a sort of milieu, <clears throat> located alongside other individuals whose understated influence is often overlooked. So without analysis, this very short talk is based upon personal observations 
and is intended to be visual, which seems to be a characteristic of Fisker's work. One designed to promote a strong visual effect in its inhabitants and citizens. In 1927, Fisker and his colleague Ralfen co-authored an article in the AR on modern Danish architecture, one seeking new forms of expression, describing its beginnings in the 1830s with M.G. Bindespol, that of the same period of Sone in England, alongside those of P.V. Jensen Klint <coughs> as being another of its founders. He focused on the ideas of the Viennese planner Camilo Cite, whose book, City Planning According to Artistic Principles, discouraged the use of straight lines in favor of the complexity of the curve as an organizing spatial device, together with the breaking down of volumes. In 1889, it was upon many of his ideas <clears throat> that the city planning authorities based their new building act. This is the lake. These are the forms, and two of Fisker's buildings that I'm going to talk about lie here on a main road with its nose kind of just pointing in to the fantastic space. And then at the very southern end, just at the tip, almost moored like a ship, is the last. Bindespool's Torvaldsen's Museum is one of my favorite buildings. <laughs> It houses classical sculpture brought back from Rome by the sculptor Torvaldsen, made visible in parts of its facade, presented as a kind of continuous low-level frieze, drawn-like, describing the events of his homecoming journey back from Rome, accompanied by classical sculpture, these now all included inside. This picture-like enclosure to the space around the building gives it a special, intimate feeling. The effect is very unusual. At times, you walk alongside these giant scaled figures. This treatment of the facade both distances itself from its surroundings and makes intimate the space within which it is situated. It's a special setting, and it renders the space around it with an unexpected informality. Seen up close, the texture feels dense. It's flat, heightening its effect. Within its interior, a series of tomb-like rooms are arranged in enfilade around a central courtyard. Illusion plays its part here, painted with representations of nature, reminding me of the Swede Linnaeus's early depictions of the plant world. Garden-like interiors suggesting rooms where nature is enjoyed and at one with man's world. It feels both Greek-like and contemporary. <clears throat> this kind of effect renders parts of the city with a special kind of intimate urbanism. And it's this strong visual effect that I see in a similar and different way when remembering Fisker's early buildings. His teachings at the academy encouraged the study of the vernacular from which he saw inspiration in the familiar, an interest he shared with the architect P.V. Jensen, who he mentioned in the AR article on the right. <laughs> this very strange and beautiful barn <clears throat> that I think he photographed on a trip to bicycle trip to Germany. This villa of 1909 shows a willingness to exaggerate vernacular forms to great dramatic effect, and it reminds me of the entrance to Caesar's tea house in Matoshinos. Such levels of distortion suggest the drama with which 
excuse me, such levels of distortion suggest the drama which can be brought to architecture, even with the familiar appearance of traditional forms. A willingness to distort a great visual effect, intensifying experience. In his winning design competition for Grundwigskirche in 1919, he describes it as a modern version of a traditional Danish medieval village church. It's built up on high ground on what was then the outskirts of Copenhagen, surrounded by low housing. <clears throat> it's tended to be largely represented by the Danes as a result of rational analysis. Sorry, it's tended to be represented largely by the Danes as the result of a rational analysis of problems resulting in a genuine functionalism. To my eye, its brilliance lies in the imaginative way in which a compositional idea is presented as an architectural idea. <laughs> at the front, a small lobby is, sent, is set at the base of a main element, a large organ-like body. Each respective form mediates between its immediate relative surroundings, namely a pitched roof, to that of the low housing extending in front of it, and the seemingly tall body behind it to the tall alley of trees <clears throat> which extend out beyond the low housing. I find this sort of concept, complex contextualism, compelling as a, as a form of imaginative placemaking. Despite all of this, outside of Denmark, little attention seems to have been given to such a remarkable building. It gives emphasis to a heightened sense of experience, which changes my sense of perception of scale in unexpected and surprising ways. And to me, this is what matters in architecture. It makes me think afterwards, then ask why. Fisker's co-author of that AR, Ralphen, had responsibility for the design and development of much of Kampmann's Kuppenhauen police headquarters of 1919, considered by some to be actually his own work. Much attention is given to a considerable number of small-scaled expressive details. This visual impact lessens the feeling of the monumental, and Ralphen describes their playful role as to create moments of purely aesthetic enjoyment. I see this in his beautiful, bold, geometric woven pattern for the circular courtyard. Many expressive details have a craft-like feeling, these flattish drainage outlets seen as stars scattered within a circular courtyard, which render the space as some planetary-like setting. And this is a very nice photograph by a contemporary of Fisker's, Steen Iller Rasmussen of sunlight striking the sill, or is it a lintel, in one of the courtyard spaces. His fantastic publication, London, The Unique City, presented his observations by photography of a different London to that which I'd seen before. They describe a city of empty spaces full of presence, a view often seen only by outsiders. This, this is interesting, particularly interesting. Uh, 
in, Raffin, in Ralphen's smaller scale design for the bicycle racks outside the police headquarters, I think he shares something in common with Fisker's designs for silver baskets. To my eye, these both represent objects whose design appearance lies on the cusp, somewhere in between ideas represented by pots and urns, in the way that an urn continues to hold a, a part of history, whereas the form of a pot is drained of all artistry, a simple container of goods. Both their fine line drawings are intricate and have a crown-like quality. Ralphen's later design for his own modest villa in 1931 represents to me a personal unorthodox alternative modernism, contextualized by painted colored surfaces which break down the small volumes into colored planes. <laughs> it gives them a less monumental appearance. The timber-clad walls resemble trellis-like garden structures taken from the setting around from which it is drawn. It shares with Fisker here, albeit in a private suburban villa, an awareness of place and setting to which it responds to in an intimate way by scale and detail, a sensitivity which I see in his larger urban housing projects in the city as small-scale design focuses which characterize his work. <laughs> okay, so this is the first. <clears throat> building of the three, and uh, it's almost 100 years ago, and that's extraordinary, I think. <clears throat> it has this improbably long, continuous elevation stretching for almost 200 meters, <laughs> with a quite horizontal emphasis, which to my mind exaggerates the length of the road, it's a quite busy road, which at this point, as Martin says, curves a little bit. And this small shift is absorbed within the building, rooting it to this particular location. I think it's very beautiful and very subtle. Oops. Yeah. <clears throat> On the corners are squarish pilasters boldly holding up the roof soffit with dentals pushing through like miniature brackets. The facade is very thin, almost flat, but the effect is rich all framed by the blocky corner posts. The limited number of architectural elements composing the facade make for a very refined effect, very Kierkegaard-like in its discipline, restraint fueling the imagination. The visual attention given to the small-scale details affects the impression of the larger scale. The largest repetitive windows seem even larger, set within their flattish surrounds. All this seems to increase the overall visual effect. There's an equivalence given to all the drawn-like compositional elements set within the pale textured brickwork stretching over its surface. This impossibly long building houses an equally improbably large but beautiful shared garden space within it, all bound by an improbably thin wall of accommodation which is arranged uniformly around all four of its sides, irrespective of orientation or circumstance. Um, this is a brick pavilion designed by Peter Behrens, uh, I think called the Dumbauhut, for workers uh, for the German pavilion in 1922. It's very bold, a uh, brick composition of geometric elements with capital A's 
emerging as tiled roofs with ornamental gable ends and diamond-shaped brickwork. Buttressed, gothic-like and a little bit pointy, it's a demonstration of very expressive brickwork. Its gantry-like ridges make it feel industrial and purposeful. It looks like a building, one with use. And this is Fisker's uh, Danish pavilion for the Arts and Crafts Exposition in Paris three years later. And it's a brick pavilion and it's massive, but it's an entirely different animal to Behrens. Um, it's blocky, much, left, much less lively in its expression, temple-like, cool even, with horizontally stressed joints. <clears throat> and I see this style appear later on in smaller forms employed to quite different ends, those of a human scale. <clears throat> so now I'm going to talk about the building which I enjoy very much and is again one of my favourite buildings in Copenhagen. It's this one in the middle. And it's located um, in Vordrosavai, and it's in Danish it's called the Leerkerkhuse, uh, which I think is called the Leercake in English. And it's uh, apartments, 32 apartments, <clears throat> and, and to my mind a, a shift has occurred. Uh, and I think it's, it's, to me, it's very interesting that he doesn't really return to this shift. And it's located in this beautiful residential area in Vordrosvai with these fantastic, giant, expressive brick corbling details which give depth to the facade and make interesting spaces. And these are other details around the neighbourhood, the environment. This is on all Boulevarden, which would take you to the long courtyard. And I find these really interesting as kind of anonymous, if you would say vernacular, but they're anonymous buildings. And you find many of them in Copenhagen. And I think that's one of the things that attracts me to Copenhagen. It's not full of set pieces. And it seems to eschew that. <clears throat> this is the site for the building uh, from archive photography. Uh, and it's sat on a lake, so the top image shows a view across the lake, and the bottom one is uh, the building that was demolished to make way of it, make way for it. So on one side, there's a there's a end of the lake, there's a kind of reservoir at 1.5 meters higher than the road, <clears throat> and. At the at the opposite end of the site stands the facade of the Neutheater which is set back from the road and makes a very special space, which is bound on three sides. And it's, it's very particular. So sort of take a note of this, because I, I think it informs, to my mind, what he does, or certainly it makes a space of a very particular quality. On either side of that setback space, um, there are very beautifully designed elevations with an array of inventive windows and gnarly brick openings. I think Fisker borrows from this stripy red and yellow Danish brickwork, which in his hands becomes pop-like and altogether different, less traditional and playful, not contextual in a dull, slavish way. These early drawings and perspectives show a kind of analytical and slightly mechanical building. The design appears as a recognizably functionalist one. 
In section, the floors are arranged in response to the change in level from lakeside to streetside and shift down half a floor. The building footprint aligns itself with the convergence of the two edges of the site, that of the lakeside and the road. So the, the lake is over here and the street's over here. And this is the knobbly face at the end. Linking these two legs across the waist are service rooms and arranged within them are kitchens and bathrooms. And the kitchens serve across a corridor to a whole arrangement of quite banally arranged rooms <laughs> which have an interesting and very clever coming together at the end. And each apartment has a balcony which stretches over two rooms. And in plan, you could say it looks quite dull or banal. I think seen in space, it has great presence. It's narrow, flat-ended <coughs> stack of brickwork and stripy boxes of window mullions presents an improbable end as a face to the facade of the Neutheater, opposite from which it stands, its face set back from the street, to which it seems to call out. And I like this implied island space left between the two buildings. In my mind, it's made a space between itself and the theatre facade, as found. <laughs> through which people walk and cars pass. It seems to make more visible the things around it. This glazed ginger barley sugar-like detail appears more gingery in view of its blocky, stripy neighbor. I like its sometimes awkward, sometimes highly refined, <coughs> drawn-like appearance, which I know it isn't really, but it gives me that feeling, and that's what I'm interested in, without knowing why. In my mind's eye, it has both a strong object and figure-like character. Sometimes seen as if moored just at the end of the street, its stubby prow looking fine and crafted. It's a special building. At times seen from different viewpoints, it has both a cheekiness and can also seem very sophisticated as a thing. It's a relatively simple thing, but it gives me a complex experience. And I think it shows Fister's skill as an architect and form maker. And this relationship to the facade of the Neutheater, set back in its own recessed space across the road, seems very visible from either side of the building, either high up on the lakeside path, but also on the street side. Although I know the boxy fenestration to be independent of the building's structure, at times it reads as if it's propping up the stripy brickwork, not like ribbon windows at all. In places, the crate-like windows sit like structure frames. The brickwork read as panels, then boxes when becoming balconies. <clears throat> and then finally, I also like the playfulness above head height along the street side, where globes hang projected on stalks. In the spirit of the fantasy world, of the light-themed illuminations in Tivoli, just across the lake. Seen from other positions, it's strangely absorbed within, within its surroundings and seen as part of the lakes and other adjacent buildings which edge it. This background presence is something I like very much in and around and about in places in Copenhagen. And this is the last of the three buildings. And again, to my eye, another shift has occurred and that's only three years after the previous project. And I think that's very interesting. This, uh, this 
project is um, a continuous elevation, and it reads very much like an object freestanding in space. Uh, and it sits in this curved, this is only part of it, this is the, the one leg here, one leg here, and it sits with its nose kind of pointing towards this bridge. Whereas to the back, there's a more quiet, almost like a quarter, quartier. Uh, and I, it's very interesting how the building's appearance seems to change depending upon its situation. So I think it's, its reading or its feeling is very much to do with its, its own circumstance and situation. This is that beautiful space, and I think it's one of the most beautiful spaces in Copenhagen, this continuous Cite-esque space. And I happened to live 20 years ago on the lakes, and I would pedal past these two buildings, so they're slightly close to me. Its elevation is uniform as a continuum with outward projecting balconies which vary in size and number in response to the different conditions. On this narrower street, which, bounds and face, which it bounds and faces, the balconies are smaller and more numerous, as are the apartments behind. So that's the back street, so there's eight balconies here, quite tiny. Whereas on the busier streets, the balconies are wider and less. And, it, and it's very interesting to me, the effect that that scale and number have on the space. This is the space behind it. Coming close up around the entrances to the block, small-scale miniature portals make furniture-like thresholds from dusty, pale yellow bricks. And their small-scale intimacy triggers something in me. These beautiful, blocky forms set forward just a little bit from the face of the building make lobbies, spaces in between the warmth of the inside and the cold air outside, a place to pause before entering or leaving the city. Something has happened, set into the large block at a human scale, a very small room has been made, just set back and lifted up from the street. <laughs> about these, these presentations that on the one hand Martin's exposition gives the basis by which architecture such as this or large scale projects come into being through social and political policy. That's true of um, Denmark in the period that's discussed. It was true in Paris under Hausmann. It was true in Barcelona when a whole extension was made, the Jampla, which I've just learned to say, um, by Serda. So without that, you don't get this, um, I would say, energy and large-scale architecture, energetic and large-scale architecture. That type of analysis often doesn't lead to the discussion. The things that the architects do, not just in terms of large-scale form-making, and the answering the question of what a large-scale development for workers' housing should be. But um, the things that architects do, especially in the time when the imperatives of modernism were so strong, things that architects do which are to do with their artistic sensibility, 
things that they almost do involuntarily. And that's what I see being um, understood by John's um, piece. So it, from this I'm desperately trying to form a question and it's not occurring, but I suppose a more banal question is this, that, that John, you see um, beauty in spaces in Copenhagen, which um, to many eyes would seem very empty. And this is for me a very important point, being as a designer myself, inclined to be minimalistic. Could you start the discussion by saying what the beauty is that you saw in that space in front of the last triangular building? Could you describe that? <clears throat> no, oh dear. <laughs> it's about two kilometers long from north to south, and the approximate middle of it is where the triangular building sits, just nosing its edge into the space. And it's very beautiful. And I've read ideas about curves, so I don't know how much is this, of this is what I think or whether I know this, but I feel that it's, um, it's not an infinite space, so it sets up a kind of anticipatory feeling, which axes and straight lines I don't think have. And I'm not suggesting that the planners were planning the lakes in accordance with CETA. I think it's uncanny that there's a coincidence. So I find that. And I think, I think that's a characteristic of Copenhagen, that there are very few set pieces. And yet, to my mind, there's an intimacy. And I've not really flushed this through with a Dane, so this is a first run, but um, I think there is an amazingly high level of interior design. And in, I think the Danes are very good at interior design, whether you call that design or comfort. Do you mean exterior spaces taken as interior design, or do you mean, do you mean the interiors of buildings? Well, can I just sidestep that generalization? <clears throat> um, because that's not what I'm thinking. Uh, what what sub subconsciously, I think, I, this hasn't been taught, and I don't hear it at the academy, is that I think there's uh, an, in, an inherent sensibility that the Danes have towards things. <laughs> and whether that's a chair or a room or the pavement. And I think it stems I mean, I don't hold any universal truth to this, but I think it stems from this kind of Kunsthandwerker-type <clears throat> tradition, arts and crafts tradition, and um, this kind of Lutheran idea against the Baroque and plainness. So, and it's partly, partly un it's uncanny that you ask me the question, but I think that's very much what I'd like to try to make visible here, that I don't think the the style or fashionableness of Danish things, whether it's furniture or interiors, <clears throat> can, can be transported here. To my mind, <clears throat> it's one of the few cultures where things are really connected to ethics and behavior. Do you mean artifacts? You mean things that are made, not just naturally occurring things? Uh, on many different levels. I think it's, it transcends scale. For example, I think partly it, it's, this, it, 
it's not a hard urbanism. It's very intimate. And I mean, Marx described it as a continuous room-like interior, which is a wonderful idea <clears throat> that even though you're actually outside in a city, the feeling's extraordinarily intimate. And I think this, without saying like a sociologist, I think it impacts on people's behavior, although I can't prove that. Could I, Martin, is that something you could respond to, which you could respond? Or could you go in another direction? <laughs> um, I mean, you're being given a view yeah. by wanting foreigners, which is how it often oh. is. Yeah, and sometimes foreigners see things much more clearly than when you actually live there. You, you, there are certain qualities that you might not recognize yourself. I think um, one, one thing that was also important in maybe in, in contributing to this sense of intimacy uh, and detailing was, was the fact that many of these architects of Fisker's generation really did a lot of measuring while they were students. So they were so, they knew buildings really through their own bodies and through bodily experience. And I think that impacted their way of designing that they had been measuring vernacular buildings and other buildings and, and really know how these buildings were constructed and how they were detailed and, and how they impacted their, their, their bodies and sensations. So I think that's an, aspect of that intimacy as well. Well, it's interesting because, as we know, the modern movement in Germany and France is adamant that there should be a, a, that traditional materials and traditional forms should be abandoned in the face, to some extent, with an abstract architecture, an abstract architecture which was void of all previous associations and which could be said to be democratic. Um, but, and some architects like Jakobsen um, participated in that to a degree. But this um, work where you might say a parallel modernism occurred, where um, uh, the traditional forms, some traditional forms, were selectively taken and were developed to make, um, to address issues which were modern, which were about mass <coughs> occupation of buildings, large-scale buildings, by working people and other people in the city. And that's, that's um, particular. Uh, is that something you could talk about, that particular choice that Danish architects made to continue with um, known materials and um, traditional construction um, mm. into modernism? Is that a direction that you could pursue? Um, I think... In some regards, the fact that they didn't apply, well, they did apply some modern construction techniques, but, but not entirely, was out of, of just circumstances that what was possible, what kind of materials could you, could you get. And um, as, as I think some of my examples suggested. And, um, but I think there was also this um, awareness of, of tradition and and uh, uh, and the qualities of that. Yeah. Um, I think Fisker was he, was, he was not reactionary, it's not that he was trying to preserve um, tradition for its own sake, but he took what could be used in a contemporary society and, and transformed it 
um, into addressing contemporary uh, needs, um, particularly in housing. Um, well, that's what I think I at least find interesting about this period of architecture, which is that it, it didn't um, have to make extraordinary work. It didn't have to make um, uh, the kind of buildings that we see, which Cesar did make, which had their own validity. It was um, an attempt to um, rationally work with um, what was available, but also to work, when I think they have, with um, the associations <coughs> of the materials they used, so that there would be a degree of familiarity in what mm. they did, so that people would somehow be able to engage with the projects that, uh, because some of their materials and problems were so well known. Maybe just to add, I think part of it also comes from the way that the academy or the School of Architecture at the academy was, was structured in the early 20th century. Because um, in, in the 19th century, they were teaching historical forms and, and styles. And that was what the students were supposed to learn, to copy historical styles. Um, and they had something called the temple class. So they would... Like more basically copy uh, Greek and Roman forms, um, but then in the early 20th century there was they they formed a new class called the Danish class, uh, and the point of that was to to have to heighten the level of of more mundane buildings in in uh, in Denmark. So so that was uh, as as opposed to the to the temple class. So so there was an awareness that. We need architects to be able to address more, um, not only be able to design not only monuments, but also the more average buildings, the more anonymous buildings. So was that the, the Danish class, was that based on research um, on how um, traditional materials might be used to address mm. contemporary need? Who was active yeah. in, that, in that class? Um, that was, for instance, uh, well, the professor was Martin Newup, who was the designer of the, the city hall in Copenhagen, mm -hmm. uh, which was sort of an art, maybe you can call him an art and craft uh, architect of the time. Um, and they would be looking not only at um, examples of Danish vernacular, but also vernacular architecture in other countries. Uh, oh, other when they were going to Italy, for instance. Uh, the, Actually, later, Fisker was uh, part of publishing. Um, he, he was taught by, um, or he worked for an architect called Hack Kampmann, who built a lot of, in Aarhus, who was also part of the police headquarters uh, design. And um, Fisker published some of his sketches, travel sketches, from Italy and, and, and throughout Europe much later. So there was an interest in not only monuments of of antiquity, but also alternative kinds of architecture from the vernacular, for instance. Could I ask if there are questions from the audience? My name is Thomas Patterson. I'm a lighting designer, actually, and live in Mexico, where we have enormous buildings of uh, great repetition continuing to spring up. Um, the word mundane has come up a few times, and uh, it just strikes me sitting here that uh, we have two people on stage who are passionate about these buildings, but I can't help but feel they're mundane. Um, and 
would like to understand what both what would make you passionate about them enough to commit a fair chunk of your life to them and the way they actually function as buildings to live in because we haven't heard anything about the residents so far mm. and you know are there any maybe not metrics maybe maybe the the property values inside the uh, apartments compared to the ones across the street are not a great metric but is there any sort of measurement of or representation of how successful they are as places to live on an ongoing basis why would you want to live there to put it more bluntly i don't know if i can answer that i think well the buildings are also quite different if you compare the buildings from the around 1920 uh, as as john was mentioning there's no attention to to uh, where the light comes from for instance so you would have on one side you have south facing living rooms and but the other side you would have north facing and 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 it's very different with the much later projects where you have much more attention to lighting qualities and maybe uh, the f flow of the internal spaces. So it's difficult to, com to compare the, the, the different projects. Um, some of them are, are extremely attractive, uh, especially the one, uh, the Vestasuhus are very, very long with the balconies and, and it, um, views to the lakes and... and, and it has these, the apartments are also bigger, so they have penthouses on the top, and whilst others are much more, they're built for working class purposes, so they're very different. But quite often, mm. this, I want to know if this is true in, in Copenhagen, quite often projects like this were built to replace workers' housing that was very, <coughs> very substandard. So for working people, they were a miracle. You know, they had privacy and inside bathroom and things like that. Was that how it was in, um, in these buildings that we're describing in Copenhagen? Yeah, uh, well, um, well, it was definitely a, a huge improvement of living qualities for, for, for many Copenhageners when, when these buildings were constructed that would just be much more uh, well constructed. They had much better heating conditions and, and all the other qualities that you just mentioned. Uh, the fact that there was uh, in uh, Hornbeck Hoos that they had this huge park-like common area in the middle also uh, was such an improvement of, of the living qualities, uh, uh, living conditions that had been seen higher to uh, in Copenhagen for, for workers. So, But one of the conditions of modernism was that housing was provided in the way that's been described, which was miraculous improvements for working people. But through the ethos of modernism, a lot of familiar motifs, traditional motifs, were stripped away. Not entirely because people like Hans, Hans May in Hamburg continued them, but one of the conditions of modernism was a reduction of um, the familiar. And that's not something I argue for or against, it's just a condition. Um, it's interesting that um, some people, some Parisians won't live in the, um, uh, the big boulevards because they don't like the, um, they don't like, they never like them, you know, they find them too imposing. So architecture can sometimes be successful and through a long period its value can be learned. Um, I mean, here in, in London, uh, the current generation of young designers hanker to live in um, the Barbican or um, Golden Lane, which 
because of this social content, so to speak. So this is, a, if I'm understanding you correctly, why are they delightful? How are they delightful? It, it's a much more, it's a complex question that can't be answered in a single way. So I'm going to abandon your question and ask somebody else. <laughs> because I can't answer it and nobody else here can. But is there somebody else? Um, Alan, did you want to um, talk? Thank you. Uh, Alan Powers. Well, I don't know if this is an answer at all, but uh, what strikes me is how mannerist they are in a way that I really like. Mannerist. Mannerist. Well, it's nearly the same thing. Yeah, mannerist. Mannerist in an art historical sense. Sorry, mannerist. I finally understood what you said. The acoustics actually in here rather than there. Do you want to pursue that? Well, it's something I've noted as a feature in British architecture that's equivalent. Uh, and it, it sort of takes two forms. One is the, the kind of dislocation of um, some of the features where the windows are jumbled or the floor levels are sort of split. Uh, and the other is the extreme repetition, which I think is another form of mannerism, where you're so non-mannerist and you do it for so long that it becomes mannerist. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> are there any other questions? It's a bleak. It's a what? being said and so you're not going to answer but you're going to say something else I'm going to answer a different question um, because because I think there's an opportunity I think something's missing I mean I don't know how explicit my talk was it was probably quite rambling <clears throat> and I deliberately limited it to the end of 19, the beginning of 1930, and it's a generalization, but it's a feeling. I mean, I'm 57. Why look at Kai Fisker's work, um, and not just Kai Fisker this evening, who's a forgotten master, but there are many other architects, I think, whose work is perhaps anonymous or less uh, well observed. From well, from the period I was trying to point out, which is which predates his work. And I, I don't have, uh, haven't done this research, but um, I think modernism can seem quite mechanistic at times. And I think practicing now and teaching, um, it's very interesting to have a wider perspective on the 20th century, which goes back to the eight, 19th century. So what I'm suggesting is that this mannerism, I think, was far more um, expressive and personal and slightly playful um, before modernism. It's, a, it's at times as if modernism uh, was uh, the kiss of death to any kind of artistry. And, I'm not, and I don't have an answer. I'm not suggesting we return to this kind of Kunsthandwerke period, because very few people draw anything now at one-to-one -one anyway. But it seems to me when you do, people notice it. So obliquely, in answer to your question from Brazil, and I don't know Brazil at all, um, I guess I'm raising a question about something missing. And I know this is Docomomo's platform. And I think there's a, it raises a question about the problems with modernism and um, what was lost. You know, it was almost like beauty was couldn't be rationalized, it wasn't a science, it couldn't be explained. 
And previously, I think architects naturally address beauty. It wasn't even spoken about, it was just done. And I think architects neglected beauty, and that's one thing that I would like to raise. And I think obliquely that's what I've been trying to monger. Sort of unattainable abstractness. So I don't think there was any lack of concern about what it looked like. I think it just was very publicly remote. Well, I, can I, yeah. I'm a, can I bat that back? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think I think there's an. You know, there's a great power to abstraction. It can intensify something that you recognize. But I think abstract architecture is no longer recognizable as something. When it, and you've used the word that it was used to democratize. I think there's a, there's a point where it becomes so abstract, it doesn't look like anything anymore. It's just That's itself. Exactly. I remember when we started preparing the, the, the event with Okomomo and with Judy, um, we were like trying to find like pictures about like that we could find on the archives about Kate Fisker. And there were like uh, one particular project that caught my attention, and it was the Danish pavilion that actually John saw uh, in one slide. Because I think I think like that that project in particular, it was the, um, the Danish pavilion for the 1925 exhibition of uh, decorative art in, in Paris. Um, and when we were, when I was like briefly researching about it, like uh, I realized how relevant it was because it was in 1925 and uh, it was representing Denmark and all the countries that were re represented in that same show were like, for instance, Belgium were represented by Victor Orta, by a pavilion designed by Victor Orta. I think Austria was Peter Behrens. Um, and they were like quite classical compared to like the proposal from Fisker, um, which was actually very radical. And uh, in the same vein of like the, the, the proposal from Melnikov, which were representing Russia. And I was wondering if you could like explain a little bit more about that commission and where it came from. Maybe like you, Martin, know a little bit more about it. Because it's, it's a quite unusual project in his kind of, in, in his portfolio. In my point of view, like quite, particularly like beautiful? Well, let's see if I remember the entire history of, of that. No, um, well, I think Fisker was commissioned to do this uh, project. He had completed some of these housing projects and he had proved himself to be like very successful, young, innovative architect. So he, he had the commission. Maybe it also stands out because it's it's uh, also a particular kind of project within his, his over... Uh, and there's nothing really similar to that. And, and maybe that also exaggerates the difference from uh, more than, than uh, because the typology is just so different. There's a strange mix of monumentality, but when you look at, for instance, the staircases, they're slightly shifted. So there's this, uh, it's, it's very abstract and very, it's like a cube that has these holes cut into it and the corners have been removed. But then it's slightly, adapts to the site. And when you look at some of the drawings of it, you always see it surrounded by trees. The, on the site, there were these huge, it was close to the Seine uh, in Paris, and there were these huge plane trees. So, so actually seeing it without that is, of course, that's interesting, but it, it, it was part of the scheme that it should be maybe seen blending with the trunks of the trees. Um, and then the inside was completely filled with um, frescoes. Uh, so there's this weird 
almost like an inversion of the Torvalson Museum. There's this strange um, blurry thing of, of the walls that somehow disappear uh, inside. And you have a map of, of uh, Denmark uh, on, the, on the floor. So, so it, yeah, it's a very peculiar building. I don't know if that... It's unfortunate that the interior isn't shown. Yeah. Because that's yeah. trumped my view. Yeah. It's now time to close. Um, Judy uh, Lodge, chair of the Mama, would like to say a few words in conclusion. Thank you very much for coming today. And this is part of our mission of trying to um, bring to you a wider variety of, uh, of things that we feel are of value, not in that, just in their own right to make people more aware of, but also things which we think are relevant to design today and to thinking about problems and issues to do with um, urban and other environments today. And in the same way as in this series, we've largely been looking at forgotten or underestimated nowadays um, figures from, from usually abroad, we're now also in our own programme trying to get you to look at other things which happened which we feel were of value in Britain but outside London and the South East. So our next um, meeting is actually going to be the first in a series of that sort and we're going to be looking at Birmingham and modern movement in Birmingham. So if you come along on the 5th of March, you can find out about that, which is uh, quite, quite gritty, rather a, a different sort of modernism to what we've been seeing today. But with some value in it too, of a different kind. And we'll be doing a whole series of not only our monthly lectures, but also we've got a, a walk coming up. They're usually quite popular. Um, and some visits as well. Um, <coughs> visits, uh, there's one going to be to um, turn and to see Peter Aldington's work, and we're going to have, looks like a weekend in Liverpool, which again's a bit grittier than what we've had here, and um, there's a long weekend away, and we're also very concerned, coming back more to the sort of issues like the Royal Academy has been looking at, um, the issue of the tower block in the wake of Grenfell. We're going to be looking at that in detail. Do sign up to get on our mailing list at the back um, and do keep your eyes open for the next of, of these masters that will be, or mistresses, they may be, like last one. And thank you very much for coming. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.